0: This afternoon, we'll be reflecting on one of the most beautiful confessions of faith that we have in any of the three forms that we have, Lord's Day 1, speaking of our only comfort, our only comfort in life and in death. But in connection with that, we'll begin by reading from Psalm 78, Psalm 78, and we'll be reading the verses 1 to 7. Psalm 78 is a contemplation of Asaph. Asaph was a choir master for King David. King David was an Old Testament king, the one who was seen as the man after God's own heart. The measure by which many other kings were, who followed after him were measured. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. And here come the three verses that we'll be focusing on in particular this afternoon. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. So far, we'll also read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, which you'll be able to find on page 517 of your book of praise. We're just saying this, and what a beautiful confession of faith this is not to belong to ourselves, but to belong to our Savior. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that, without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation." Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Well, first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, today the Lord himself gives you his testimony. In the psalm that we've read, he gives you his testimony. We read he established a testimony in Jacob. But what exactly is a testimony? You boys and girls might be wondering this. A testimony is evidence. It's, it's proof of something. In court, if you're in a court case, then someone who has information about a crime can give their testimony. Sometimes you'll hear about people who have come to know Jesus Christ for the first time also sharing their testimony with people. They are telling people about and, and showing people proof of God's work in their lives, even though they themselves were great sinners. Today we see the Lord Himself giving His people His testimony. But His testimony is not the usual kind of proof that you might expect. Instead, He calls His people to look back on themselves and on their own history. His very own people would become His proof. Proof to them and proof to the world of who they are and whose they are. He gives them the opportunity to discover something that was there all along. So we'll look at it under the theme, the Lord gives his people his testimony. And we'll see, first of all, its audience, its purpose, and then its outcome. Now, if you were to continue in the psalm, that we have today, and you were to continue through the verses, reading the, seven, the complete 72 verses of this psalm, you'll notice that this is not just a history of what happened to Israel. This is also not a testimony of Israel's goodness, but it's a testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. And you can see that at the very beginning with the way that the Lord addresses his people in the first part of our text. In verse 5, God calls his people Jacob. Who was Jacob? Jacob was one of the fathers of the nation of Israel. This meant that every Israelite, if they went back far enough, had Jacob in their family tree. So when God talked about his people as a whole, he would sometimes call them by this name, this name of their father, Jacob. But notice something interesting here. Jacob actually had two names. One of them was Jacob and the other one was Israel. Israel is the more usual way that God addresses his people. But notice which one he uses first today. He calls them Jacob. Jacob the heel grabber. Jacob the deceiver. Israel was the name that would bring to mind for the people of Israel this powerful forefather of their nation. Israel was the name that Jacob was given as he was given the assurances of The promise that his children would carry on and that they would be a great nation under the protection of their covenant God. When they thought Israel, they would think this figure who was wise and this figure who was strong, powerful. If anything, you would think that when remembering the history and the promises given by a powerful God to the one who was the father of a nation, the author of our psalm, Asaph, would want to remember that name. But here he refers to him as the deceiver, as the heel grabber, as the brother who tricked his brother and stole his inheritance from him. As the brother who lied to his father in a big way. And who lied to his uncle as well. But we read here that God had established a testimony in Jacob. He used the nation's slowness, ignorance, and failures. And through his nation's oh-so-frequent wanderings, he gave further proof of his covenant love. Consider the kind of nation they're revealed to be in our psalm here today. Verses 10 to 11. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. In the following verses, you see miracles. You see dividing the Red Sea, stopping the Jordan River, leading them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire. All of these miracles, and yet you see here in verse 17, "...but they sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in their wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy." Then the Lord God responded to them and he gave them manna from heaven. He gave them flocks of quail to feed them more than they could eat. He warned them with punishments. And then in verse 32, in spite of this, they still sinned. And they did not believe his wondrous works. Punishment and the remembrance of the Lord as their redeemer followed. But in verse 36, nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth And they lied to him with their tongue. Verse 40, they provoked him. Verse 56, they tested him and they did not keep his testimonies. And yet even with all of that in verse 66, although they were unworthy, although they constantly fell back, the Lord beat back his people's enemies. And in verse 70, he put over them a man after, the, after his own heart. God was making something clear to them through all of this. He was making it clear that this favored nation, this nation of Israel, existed for the very purpose of maintaining God's truth while surrounded by idolatrous neighbors. And this was the place that they would remain in despite their wickedness and despite their shortcomings. In fact, even despite their wickedness and shortcomings, they became the shining beacon of God's faithfulness in a dark, dark world. Because their existence as a people, the fact that they hadn't already been wiped out as a people, wasn't proof of their faithfulness, but it was proof of God's. So what's the reason behind establishing a testimony of showing the proof to Israel of their own failures? What's the reason behind naming them Jacob first, of, of bringing the worst of themselves to their minds? Well, we can read this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. It says there, The Lord didn't set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord set his love on you because the Lord, he he chose you because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. This was to remind a people who had fallen away so often in their recent history under the rule of the judges, who had also fallen their, followed their former king Saul as he led them astray, it was a people who had now and only now found a new footing under the rule of a new king. The nation of Israel was entering into a new phase into the history. God was giving them a new start and he was revealing to them the next step in redemptive history having made King David a faithful king unlike their very first king Saul, their ruler. This king was to be the image, the foreshadowing of a king who would come of King Jesus. As they were beginning this new stage, he was using the words of Asaph, the choir master of the king, to remind them who they were and whose they were. Asaph was teaching them as they entered into this new era that this was their covenant Lord. All capital letters again. That special name that he gave them along with everything that came with it that reminded them of that special relationship. It was the Lord who watched over them. The Lord who forgave them. Who loved them. Not because they were better or more worthy than the nations around them, but because he had laid a claim to them, just like he lays a claim to you through the sign and seal of your baptism, beloved. And this is something that we can reflect on today as well as we're looking at these opening words of the Heidelberg Catechism. I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. It's not that he's unaware of our sins. Oh, he's very aware of our sins. But he has placed his love on his people, and he has chosen his people. And so when we reflect on our own sins and shortcomings we can also reflect on the grace of God who has chosen us, not because we're better or more worthy than other people, but because he has chosen to set his love on on his people. This brings us to the second point. The Lord wants his people to know where they came from, to be aware of their shortcomings And especially to be aware of his faithfulness, his love and deliverance through it all. And the question that remains after that is, what are you going to do with this knowledge now? That's what our catechism today encourages us to look to as well. For the Christian, the first thing that God teaches us is how great our sin and misery is. What a comfort this is for us, beloved. It's not a reason for God to turn aside in disgust. He still comes to his people in love and he delivers them. And that's the second thing we can see here. Despite the fact that it is they themselves who get themselves into a fix time and time again, God comes after his people. He delivers them from their sins and misery into which they got themselves into all on their own. You read through this and you can't help but... Stand in awe because of the fact that as you're reading through this, you can see again and again and again that they get into all of these miserable situations all on their own, despite of everything that God has done for them. And yet God delivers them from their sins and misery. Yes, he disciplines them for a time, but he doesn't abandon them. Instead, he delivers them. Isn't this incredible, beloved? You and I, looking at each other and looking at ourselves, we're not always the greatest of people, are we? There are days when we might even not like ourselves. And yet God is there. He encourages His people. He brings their sins before them. And he wants to remind them that this doesn't change the fact that they are his people and that they belong to him and that their hearts belong to him because he has laid claim to them and delivered them first. Oh, how many of us would be able to write a psalm like this one about our own lives. And how quick we would do that too, wouldn't we? Write out a psalm like this, listing all of our own sins and shortcomings. But beloved, are we also quick to remember the salvation and the deliverance of the Lord in the meantime? Of the fact that we belong to him, When you write the memory of sins on your heart, do you also write the memory of the Lord's much greater faithfulness? He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These are not just words. He doesn't harbor his anger forever. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Do we remember this, beloved? When you get... Into a melancholy mood, you fall back on grieving about all of your past sins. Maybe you're lying in bed at night and you're just playing through it all in your head over and over again. Do you take the time during this time to see and to remember the Lord's faithfulness even through these times? In each of these moments, when we ourselves have wandered and the Lord brings us back, it's a reminder to us of this declaration of God's, you belong to me. He says, you belong to me. Again, as we say in question and answer one, I'm not my own, but I belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He paid the price for us with his precious blood. He says, you belong to me. Each of these moments, when you're thinking in the night and you're playing through all of these things that you've done through your head, when you reflect on how the Lord brought you back, you have the opportunity once again to confess as our Lord's Day goes on to say, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from a head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. These things that have happened in the past, the Lord worked through them and he used them to draw me back to him. But the Lord doesn't just want you to recognize his faithfulness for yourselves. He wants you to pass this on. And he tells us as much in the next verses of Psalm 78. He established the nation of Israel. He established Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, as his people. He established them as a testimony, as a proof to the nations around of his faithfulness. The faithfulness of this covenant God to believers and to their children. Of his faithfulness to his name, to his promises and to his people. Tell this to your children, he says. Don't just keep it for yourself. This is what God has done for you. And this is what you share with those who come after you. Covenant children who can lay claim to these very same promises. For you covenant children, this God is your God too. He lays claim to your life. And the testimony of the faithfulness that he shows to your parents is also yours. He promises to show you this very same love and faithfulness while calling and obliging you, as our baptism form says, to a new obedience. To come to him under the banner of Christ, coming in repentance, coming in faith, turning away from sin. Now, this promise isn't going to become yours, but it is yours as children of the covenant because our God is unfailing. He'll come time and time again to you, his covenant children, even if you fall back into sin, because he loves you and you would keep the covenant oath that he has sworn to your fathers. The only way that you can rupture this is if you walk away from the covenant. God himself will never fail. He's claimed you in, his ba- in your baptism. And you can only harm this if you reject this family bond that God has placed on you, this family bond which is already yours. But even then, the covenant will follow you, albeit with the sadness of being a covenant breaker. So what about those children who have walked away then? We grieve for them deeply. But even to them, the Lord has established his testimony in his people. Even to them, the Lord never stops speaking through us. We will never stop being a testimony to them. We'll never stop being living proof of the faithfulness of the Lord. We as believers can't because that's simply who we are. We are Jacob, the heel grabber, but we're also Israel, the chosen, redeemed people of God. Our children and our siblings know us for the sinners that we are possibly more than anyone else. Our husbands and wives know us for the sinners that we are possibly more than anyone else. But it's our prayer that they would also know us for the God who is ours. We are a reminder that God is always there, that he forgives the lost, wandering sinner, and that he welcomes them home. That our God, who has forgiven us, not sweeping our sins and shortcomings under the rug, but granting his own son to pay with his precious blood this debt, to redeem a people whom he loves at great personal cost. But whether to them or to others, we will never stop telling the next generation of the faithfulness of the Lord. We will not hide it from them. Generation after generation that none may ever forget the faithfulness of our God. Let us never hide it from them. Spurgeon says it beautifully. The best education is in the best things. The first lesson for a child should be concerning his mother's God. Around the fireside, fathers should repeat not only Bible records, but the deeds of martyrs and reformers, and moreover, the dealings of the Lord with themselves, both in providence and in grace. What happy hours and pleasant evenings have children had at their parents' knees as they have listened to some sweet story of old. Reader, if you have children, mind that you do not fail in this duty. End quote. Beloved, teach of our faithful God and Father. Teach of his providence and his grace in calling to himself a people time and time again. Teach them with a purpose. A purpose that seeks a blessed outcome. For that's the reason that we are to do this. Verse 6, God established Jacob as proof so that the generation to come might know of his faithfulness, his providence, his grace, his guidance. There is a purpose to all of this. And it is in verse 7 that they might set their hope in God. Which brings us to its outcome. You see, God isn't just interested in you, He's also interested in your children. He's laid claim to them as His covenant possession as well, as we saw before. They belong to Him. And as you speak of the Lord's faithfulness in broad terms in the nation of Israel, by the way, this is important. This is the reason also why we've been given the Bible and why we've been given this psalm that reflects on that. Don't just personalize it. God used his faithfulness throughout history as an example for a reason. But as you speak of the Lord's faithfulness in broad, historical, sweeping terms as redemptive history unfolds, and you speak of his faithfulness to the church throughout the ages and to you in your own life despite your own sins and despite your own shortcomings, you are declaring to them that you have a God who looks beyond your own sins and misery. You have a God who looks beyond their own sins and misery you have a God who remembers those who remember him even if for some of us it might take a lot longer in getting there he is the one who works faith he is the one who calls back to faithfulness and so he is the one to whom they should turn God has told you this so that you can tell them this They haven't lived this. You have. They've still got a whole life ahead of them. He has told you this so that you can tell them this. So that they in turn can tell their children this. That the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare it to their children. And it is so beautiful to see this taking place. In our congregation, we have the opportunity to see this taking place in up to four generations. Grandparents have told of the faithfulness and promises of God to their children, who have in turn joined their parents in telling it to their children, and now we have grandchildren, even in this very same congregation, who are telling of the beauty and of the faithfulness of our covenant God to their children. They are joining in the hymn, you might say, joining in with this chorus of praise, singing the praises and faithfulness of our covenant God. They're not just speaking alone either, though. They're not just speaking as as grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. They are speaking with the weight of generation generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation speaking of the love and covenant faithfulness of our God. Because they're praying for this outcome that these grandchildren and these great-grandchildren, you, who are sitting here today, that they might first, our psalm says, set their hope on God. He is the Lord. Capital letters, his covenant name. And here we teach each child to confess I am part of that covenant. I am not my own. My baptism showed this to me. I can lean on this same covenant because the same God who laid claim to my parents also lays claim to me and gives me his promises. In the second place, not forget the works of God. Teaching them, God will not abandon me because I've sinned. He didn't abandon my father and my mother. He'll call me back. He's calling me back right now and I want to come to him. And third, but keep his commandments. Not out of duty, or obligation, not out of a strained attempt to live up to the standard of even my parents or the perfect standard of an almighty holy God, but to do this out of thankfulness, out of gratitude to a Father who has redeemed us, out of the power of the Spirit whom he has placed in your hearts, who assures you of eternal life by the fruit that you see as you act out of thankfulness and who makes you hardly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is why the Lord has given us his testimony today to remind us of our sin and to overwhelm us and our children with his covenant grace, to teach us of his claim on the next generation and to guide us in directing our lives in thankfulness to him. Amen.